open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Our series that we are working through is Christianity 101. Christianity 101. Now, how many of you know there's weird stuff being taught in Christianity all over the place, right? So what we're doing is we're establishing kind of a baseline of belief. We looked at uh, salvation. Kind of my outline for this is people make the statement that all religions are fundamentally the same. How many of you ever heard somebody say that? All religions are fundamentally the same. And so what we say is, yes, they're fundamentally the same, except for what they teach about, about sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the church, and eternity. But other than that, they're really all just very, very similar. So what we're doing is we're identifying, that's our outline, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the nature of man. And uh, so we're going to be going through those subjects. Today our subject is heaven. It is heaven. And what a, what a great thing to think about. So why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that there are some things that we can know. And so, Father, I pray that as we see these things, that our eyes will be opened, that our hearts will be changed, and, Lord, that our thinking will come into line with what you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, so what is that talking about? When, you, when a person is saved, that is, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, the Bible says that you are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And what that means is that you are, it is as if you died and were risen with Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus Christ said to his disciples, they said that, they wanted to be baptized with his baptism. And he said to them, he said, you can't, you can't do that. And he said, but you will be baptized with it. How is that? They had already been baptized by water. This is when Jesus Christ died. They were included in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, you're included in his death, burial, and his resurrection. How in the world... Does that happen? How in the world does that work? It's because Jesus Christ died in your place. He died in my place. He was buried in my place. And He rose from the dead because I couldn't. And because He rose, we can rise with Him, the Bible says. So that's why it's important to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life. It's the only way that a person can ever hope to be risen with Christ. And look at what it says, chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are where? Above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your, look at what it says, affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's, here's biblical math, all right? If you're born once, you're going to die twice. That is, you're going to die physically and then you're going to die spiritually forever in a Christless hell in torment forever. But the good news is if you're born twice, you only die once. Jesus Christ said, you must be born again. George Whitfield, the famous preacher of the 1700s, he came to America to preach. He was an Anglican priest, and the Anglican churches wouldn't allow him to preach in their churches because he believed that you had to be born again. The Anglican churches were teaching that you were saved by your baptism. And so he would preach, you must be born again. Everywhere he went, he'd preach to large crowds uh, in fields. As a matter of fact, the crowds were so large that, that Benjamin Franklin went to hear him, and he said, I want to hear how far away I can walk. I want to see how far away I can walk and still hear him. And he went 1.2 miles and could still hear uh, George Whitfield preach. And you know what he was preaching? You must be born again. He was asked by a reporter one time, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. And do you know what that message is today? You must be born again. 
The Bible says, and we looked at it last week, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So you can know that you're saved by placing your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, confessing your sin to Him. He'll save you. When that happens, you are risen together with Him. Look with me in the book of Ephesians. Just two books back. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 1. And you hath he quickened, that means made alive. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. That's That conversation, that's where we lived. It's, it's everything to do with our life among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now look at this. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the bad news. Children of wrath. That means that God is angry with you. Have you ever heard this statement, God's not mad at you? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Liar, liar, pants on fire. If you're not saved, He is mad at you. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. If, you're not, if you've never been born again, you are under the wrath of God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Look, by grace you're saved. Now look at what it says. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together, where? In heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Man, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, He, he, is, he wants to save you. How many of you know that you're saved? You know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Well, the Bible says that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean? That means that spiritually, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, the Bible says, For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. What body is that? It's Jesus Christ's body. If you read through the book of Ephesians and look at how many times it says, In Christ, in Him, in Him, in Christ. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit places you in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ has a body. It's His physical body. Where is that body right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, in heaven, making intercession for you and for me. Isn't that wonderful? So we can have access to the throne of grace. That's why the Bible in Ephesians chapter 4 is so adamant about it. Look with me at, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So if you're here today, God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's in your mind. He knows exactly what you're thinking. Amen? He knows exactly what you're thinking. If you don't believe in God, God knows what you're thinking. Right? You might not believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. So look at what it says. He's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, how many of you, don't raise your hands, I'm sure for all of us, when you think about that, how everything about you is open and naked before God. There is no hiding from him. I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again because it's just so funny. When Jacob was, I don't know, three or four, three, two, I don't know. He was, we were playing hide and seek. 
and we had curtains in our house. That's when we lived here on Edgewood. And the curtains came down to here on him. And so he figured since we couldn't see him, or he couldn't, or that he couldn't see us, we couldn't see him. And so he goes and hides under the curtains that are just to here. And he said, come find me. And so we walk into the room and, where's Jacob? Where's Jacob? Really, he was 13, but we don't want to embarrass him. (laughs) Where's Jacob? That's the way that we are. We think that we're hiding something from God. And it's just like that. To make him feel better, I had swimming lessons, and I hated swimming. I was afraid to swim. And so we're at the Y, and to pass, you had to swim the length of the pool with your face in the water. And so I was going to fool everybody. And so what I did was I walked and went like this, walking the length of the pool. And everybody's up in the bleachers. And in my mind, they can't see through the water. Everybody's laughing. I'm sure they're saying, what an idiot. Who is this kid? And I'm sure my parents are sitting there thinking, I don't know. I don't have any idea who this kid is. That's the, that, that childish thinking. It's amazing how it it impacts us today. God knows everything about us. There's absolutely nothing that we can hide from Him. And yet He still loves us. Is that an amazing thing? He still loves us. Then let's read on. So verse 13 again, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's the most important part. Let us therefore come, what does it say? Boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for His saints. He's there right now. And that's a wonderful promise to us. But where is that? It's in heaven. But the Bible says that we are seated with Him in heavenly places. That's what it said in Colossians chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are in Him. If you're saved, you are in Him. And so we are in heaven. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Look at what it says in verse... verse 20, the Bible says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. So the Bible says that we as Christians are supposed to be heavenly minded. Set your affection on things above. The Bible says that our conversation, that our our interaction really is in heaven. The Bible makes it very clear that everything in this world is passing away and that the reality is in heaven. You know, people that don't like Christianity call us escapists. That, you know, they'll say we're so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. All right. Our problem is so many Christians are so earthly minded, they're of no heavenly good. You see, the, the, the idea is that we are escapists because we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. That we, and I'm glad He's going to take me out. I'm going to escape. Amen. Amen. Uh, there's a song that I just heard. It's called Survivor. He pulled us out of the fire. I'm a survivor. <laughs> that is, uh, the only way that I'm missing the fire is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am an escapist. I am escaping the fire of hell through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We are escapists, but the genuine escapists are the ones who think that this is all that there is. They're hiding in the fleeting shadows of this world. And the Bible says that all of this is going to be dissolved. All of this is going to go away and that ultimately the only thing that will exist is what God brings into eternity. And so the ultimate escapists are those, the real psychological escapists are those who don't want to look at eternity. They only want to look at what's now and what's transitory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 8. The Bible says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. Why? For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. All right? What the Bible says, look at verse 17. I love this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, that's what the people who are escaping in this world who reject eternity are doing, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so reality is in eternity. What is life? It's but a vapor that appears for a little time and vanisheth away. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Right? The Bible makes it very clear we're not promised another day. But for those of us who are saved, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, we have the hope of eternal life and heaven. And it's interesting what's been happening with the subject of heaven. What do people think about heaven? According to a 2007 Gallup poll, 81% of adult Americans say they believe in heaven. 81% of adult Americans say they believe in heaven. That's pretty cool. Because in the previous one, it was only around 70%. So more people believe in heaven. That seems to be a positive thing. Nearly 80% of those questioned in the 2007 poll also said they believe they will be admitted to heaven when they die. In other words, a very large majority of people believe in heaven, and almost everyone who believes in heaven expects to go there in the afterlife. Isn't that interesting? That sounds convenient, doesn't it? They believe in heaven, and they believe that they're going. Well, that sounds promising. It makes it seem as if, well, everybody's saved. 80% of people are saved in the United States. Well... The only problem is there's a stunning irony. While interest in heaven is rapidly rising, belief in God is steadily declining. During the same decade, bookended by those two Gallup polls, atheism was gaining unprecedented popularity, and record numbers of people now say they regard the Bible as nothing more than a book of fables and legends. So the Bible's a book of fables and legends, but heaven exists, and I'm going there. How many of you see that that's a problem? Right? Incidentally, nearly a third of those questioned in Gallup's 2007 poll said they don't believe in hell or aren't sure about it. Roughly the same numbers say they doubt the existence of the devil. So there's, there, I'm go, I, I know that heaven exists, and I know that I'm going there because there's no hell and there's no devil. How many of you can see that the world's in a mess? The world is in a mess, and that's why we've got to have accurate teaching about the Scriptures. One of the other things that has come from this, this fascination with heaven, and I'll show you why there's a fascination with heaven, but the, as a result of this fascination with heaven, people make up fanciful stories about it. So that movie that was out recently, Heaven is for Real. The only problem was that story wasn't for real. Right? It's fanciful uh, made-up stories about a child that goes to heaven and comes back. But his depictions of heaven are nothing like the Bible says, and yet Christians, they, they imbibe this stuff. There's another one, the boy that, I think the boy that came back from heaven. And it was written by um, a man named Malarkey. And his son, <laughs> his son Alex uh, was in an accident and went to heaven and came back. The only problem is Alex was in Nathaniel's class and um, has said none of it's true. And that his father made it up. And yet, right now, there are millions of gullible Christians buying into it. And, and the, the, one of the big problems we have is lost people look at that stuff, and they'll hear an experience of somebody who went to heaven and came back, and what they found out was, even though they're not saved, God's not mad at them. Don't worry about sin. Everything's okay. Do you think that that message comes from God? Obviously not. So why are people so fascinated with the concept of heaven? Where do we get information about heaven? We need to accept the boundaries God Himself has put on what He has revealed. It is sheer folly to speculate where Scripture is silent. It is sinfully wrong to try to investigate spiritual mysteries using occult means. 
This idea of talking to somebody who died and came back or communicating with the dead or any of those things, the Bible gives us exactly what God wants us to know about heaven. And so information we get from any other source must be wrong. And so we have to identify the boundaries, and the boundaries are the Scriptures. It is seriously dangerous to listen to anyone who claims to know more about God, heaven, angels, or the afterlife than God Himself has revealed to us in Scripture. Isn't that just a great statement? Those, these first few statements are from a book by John MacArthur on the glory of heaven. And he did such a good job. This is such an important thing. The boundaries of what we know about heaven must be limited to the Word of God. All right? God has placed knowledge of Himself within us. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. You know what, let's go to Romans 2. We'll go back to Romans 1 in a minute. Romans 2. Look at verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For, the, the, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And those things are this downward spiral. If you look at chapter 1, the Bible says, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. There might be somebody here in this room that says, I don't believe God will do that. Well, your belief doesn't matter because you know in your heart that it's true. Look what the Bible says in verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law... So there are, there are people... So this is Romans 2 and verse 14. There are people who call themselves atheists who they are moral people. How I many you know somebody doesn't believe in God? But, but by every human standard, they're good people. Right? We're not saying every atheist is Hitler, though Hitler was an atheist. For we have, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are, law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness their thoughts, the mean, while accusing or else excusing one another. Now look, God has written the law on men's hearts. Why do people know right from wrong? Because God created them to know that, right? So it's interesting, this, this interest in, in eternity, I'll never forget, you know, children have no concept of death being the end of everything. I'll never forget when our son Riley died, our niece, Sarah, she was probably three. And, yeah, she, was, she would have been three. She would say to Laura, where's your baby? Where's your baby? Well, she went to be, he went to be with Jesus. But, but where's your baby? The children don't have a concept of that. And in etern throughout all of human history, there's been no concept that this is the end. It's only in recent times with atheism that people come up with this concept. Why is that? Because God put in each of us four longings. We long for immortality. And you know, you know Ted Williams, um, the famous baseball player, his head, they took his head off. And it's frozen in a cryogenic state because he wanted his brain to be preserved. Do you see what happens when you're a Red Sox fan? Do you see? This is, as a Yankee fan, you understand that that's the basis of all evil. But people long for immortality. They long for immortality. Why? Because we are created to have eternal life. It's so fascinating, these four longings. 
We long for wealth. Why? Now, how many of you seriously? Some people say, well, I don't want to be rich. <laughs> That's the very rare person. How many of you, if someone's going to offer you a bunch of money right now, would take it? Right? We, we long for wealth. Why? Because we are created to have it all. Understand that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What is that? What does He own? The Bible says everything belongs to Him. And we're heirs and joint heirs with Him. Isn't that wonderful? Now, the health wealth gospel takes and, and distorts that as if God wants everybody on earth to be rich right now. Well, I'm just telling you, there are Christians in Ethiopia right now that are more godly than I am who don't know what they're going to eat today. That's the state of this world. Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you. So that, that people take that, that, this longing and they have this idea, they, they mistake what God is going to do for us in the future as if we're all going to be rich now. I've got to tell you, it, it's really a sad thing for Christians in America to be so dissatisfied with what we have that we buy into some kind of a theology that if we just trust God, He'll give us more things. That's wicked. It's just, the Bible says, desire not to be soon rich. So all of you who raised your hands earlier, you need to come to the altar at the, at the end. Then, we long for power. And all of us do. It's so interesting. When Eve sinned and God pronounced the curse on her, the Bible says, and her desire will be to her husband. And he'll rule over her. Her desire will be to her husband. It'll be two things. There are two components that every lady recognizes. Number one, you don't like having authority over you. And number two, you need that authority over you. And it's that internal conflict that every lady struggles with in marriage all through. And there's so many components to that. But ladies, would you agree with that? It is so... One lady agreed with that. All right. We long for power. Why? We were created to have dominion. We were created to have dominion. God wants us to rule this world. And you know what the Bible says about us in the book of Revelation? We're going to be kings and priests and we will rule and reign with Him. Isn't that wonderful? God put these desires in our hearts. These are good desires. And He is the one who will fulfill them for us. What about this other? We long for a place to belong. Man, there are clubs everywhere you go. There is something for people to join. Even on the Flintstones, you had the Royal Order of Water Buffalo. Right? Everybody, and that's a long time ago. That's before motors and stuff. It is, it is amazing how people, they just want to belong to things. So I, I spoke at the Kiwanis Club once. I still don't know what a Kiwanis is. I don't know what it is. There are all of these, there are all of these things where people want to get together. Why? Why? We, we long for a place to belong. Why? Because we are created to be a kingdom or be part of a kingdom. And part of a family. And the Bible says that when we're in Christ, we're part of the family and the household of God. Isn't that wonderful? We really belong. And that's one of the purposes of the New Testament church, so that before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, people can have that kind of belonging in a community of believers that gather together to worship the Savior and to edify, to build each other up and to bear one another's burdens. I'm just telling you, I'm glad when I have a struggle that there are brothers and sisters in Christ praying for me. He'll come alongside me and bear that burden. Four longings. God has placed the knowledge of Himself in creation. God has placed the knowledge of Himself in creation. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. You believe that, He'll save you. It's the power of God to salvation. Verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by works. Did I read that wrong? What does it say? The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest, look at, in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And you see, this is why there's never been a civilization discovered 
that doesn't have some kind of a sacrificial system because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of man. The very creation has shown it. So people know they have this longing for eternity, but they also have this longing for forgiveness because they know the wrath of God is on them. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important. We have the answer. God has given us the answer in His Word, and it's our responsibility to spread it. All the atheist propaganda in the world cannot and will never eliminate humanity's innate knowledge about God, silence the testimony of creation, muzzle the human conscience, stifle that sense of eternity in the human heart, or quell our longing for heaven. It is so true. It doesn't matter what people say. It is in us, and we know it. That explains why every major religion and every significant culture in the history of the human race has some notion of perfect paradise, nirvana, Elysium, Valhalla, Utopia, Shangri-La, whatever. All of these different places, all of these different cultures, there is this quest for eternity. God's put it in our hearts. What's the most notable feature of heaven? The majesty and grace of the one whose glory fills the place. People often ask this question, what will heaven be like? And when I announced that I was going to speak on heaven, I would imagine there are people that think that I am going to describe what heaven is going to be like. Now, I'm going to show what the Bible says about it, but we just don't know very much about what heaven is going to be like. Do you know why? Because we wouldn't want to stay here. And it's interesting, all of the fanciful, mythical depictions of heaven that took place in the Dark Ages... That's why people who were suffering so horribly in their living conditions wanted to kill themselves. And so the Catholic Church made it a law that if you kill yourself, you can't go to heaven. How many of you ever heard that? If you kill yourself, you can't go to heaven. Why is that? Because they had invented these fanciful notions of what heaven would be. And the actual existence of people was so horrible in comparison that people wanted to kill themselves. Now, it is interesting that for us, it's just the opposite. Our life is so good, we don't want to leave. Which is worse? I don't know. But they're both wrong. Amen? It's so fascinating. Um, MacArthur, in his book, uh, The Glory of Heaven, he talks about preaching in, um, it was a third world country. I think it was, uh, he, he was in China but he was preaching to people who had left Russia under persecution. And so there were about 1,500 of them, and they, they didn't have enough food. They were wondering where their next meal was going to come from. And you know what they wanted him to preach on? Heaven. Heaven. Because when life is so horrible, you want to hear, what does God have for me next? Amen? That was so convicting to me because, if I'm being honest, I don't think about heaven very much. When the Bible says, set your affection, it means do it by an act of the will. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What did Jesus Christ say? Lay up treasure in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Why? Because on earth, it's going to rust, it's going to go away, robbers are going to break in and steal. But in heaven, if you lay up treasure in heaven, that's for eternity. It's so interesting how... My focus, this was very convicting to me, my focus has been wrong. The majesty and grace of the... So what is the most notable feature of heaven? The majesty and grace of the one whose glory fills the place. I want you to think about something. Whenever a prophet in Scripture was blessed with a heavenly vision, his focus was firmly fixed on God and the all-surpassing glory that surrounds God's throne. I want to go through some of this. A biblical view of heaven. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. A biblical view of heaven. Isaiah chapter 6. And everybody look up here at me for just a second. The overflow, everybody look up for just a second. I really want you to get this. So all of these movies about heaven and these books about people who die and go to heaven and they come back, uh, the one story, you know, what the, the child remembers is, you know, they brought up a little chair for him so he could sit next to Jesus and these kinds of statements. Um, 
And what happens in heaven is all very mundane in these stories. It's, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It, it's just a better earth. That's not heaven. The other thing, if you were able to go to heaven and come back. Now, keep your place in Isaiah. Go to John chapter 3. Don't lose Isaiah. John chapter 3. Look at verse 12. John 3, look at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now look at what the Bible says. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus Christ is it. The only person to come from heaven and tell us what's going on here on earth is Jesus. Is that what the Bible says? So if someone ever says that you know they went to heaven and came back, they're just not telling the truth. Now, there are people in the Bible that God had gave visions of heaven, and we're going to look at that. But the Bible makes it very clear that no, but no man has gone to heaven and come back. Just Jesus Christ. That's it. Is that what the Bible just said? All right, so that is our authority on that subject. Now, if you did go to heaven and came back, I want you to see what that experience would be like. So look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Now, guys, that's not a Chattanooga choo-choo. All right, that is His garments flowing behind Him. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings with Twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. That's two of each of those. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now look at what happens. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Now that, that undone, that is he was falling apart. Uh, when I was a, a kid, um, my father had built a bedroom for my brother and I in the basement. And right across the hall was the laundry room, and in the laundry room was our furnace. I think it was an oil boiler or something. And uh, I heard this banging coming from the laundry room, middle of the night. So I got up and went in there, and as I went in there, it exploded. Now, God protected me, but... It scared me so bad. So I would have been fifth or sixth grade. It scared me so bad, I turned and ran straight into the wall and fell down scared to death. Anyone ever been scared like that? You know what I'm talking about? Just scared to death. I think that's nothing compared to what Isaiah is talking about. And I want you to see something very um, this happens uh, very consistently. All right, so verse 5 again, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When, whenever someone is transported by a vision in the Scriptures to the presence of God, the immediate response is one of, listen, unworthiness, sinfulness, and that they are completely undeserving of being there. They're out of place. Okay? Look with me at the next one. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. And what we're going to do in this passage, so it's just a few books after Isaiah, Ezekiel chapter 1, look at verse 1. 
Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. All right, so now look at verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. You see? And what I want you to see in this presentation, this is what heaven is like. Now, how many of you so far have a very clear picture of what's going on? It's, it, God's describing it to us, but our mind can't comprehend it. Don't worry, it, it'll get worse. Look at what it says in verse 8. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their foresides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went, and they went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces... They four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined to one another, and two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward, whither the spirit was to go. They went, and they turned not when they went. How many of you think that Ezekiel's having a hard time describing what he saw? Don't worry, it gets worse. So, look, it says in verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps, it went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. That's how fast they could move. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of, bar of a barrel, and they had four, and they four. All right. Uh, and they four had one likeness in their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Okay, so if we, if we kept reading, what you're seeing is if a person went to heaven and came back, what they would say is, okay, so there were these things. No point of reference. Because it's not like here. It's different. And so lots of prophecy teachers take this and they try and make each one of these details mean something, but there's no warrant for that in Scripture. What you'll see is the correlation between these creatures, the creatures in Isaiah chapter 6, the creatures in Revelation chapter 1 through 4. That they, that's very, it's all a description of what heaven is like. All right? But I want you to see something. Look at verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. So it's like all the colors of the rainbow. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And he said unto me, Son of man, Stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. So he stood up, and he's shaking and trembling. It's so different than these flippant 
ideas that come from these people who say they went to heaven and back. This is a consistent testimony of anyone who had a vision of God. Look at Daniel chapter 10. So in Daniel chapter 10, God is telling Daniel what's going to happen with Gentile nations. All right, so Daniel chapter 10, look at verse 5. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was like the barrel. His body also was like the barrel. Do you see that consistency? You'll see these consistent colors. And his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass. The voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained, look it, no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. He was undone. Yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. You can picture him, right? Looking kind of like a dog. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man, look at this, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood boldly. What's it say? I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Look with me at verse uh, 15. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. He couldn't talk. It just He was so uh, beside himself, he couldn't speak. Look at verse 16. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Just like in Isaiah chapter 6. Then I opened my mouth and spake, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, By the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. So what had to happen? Then there came again, then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. You see, all of these visions that you hear about heaven, what's heaven going to be like? Well, let me tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be filled with the presence and the glory and the majesty and the awesome terribleness of holy and a mighty God. That's what heaven is going to be like. It's not, you know, Peanuts characters sitting on clouds playing harps. These these fanciful visions. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation is where we get the most information about heaven, which is a really interesting thing. So I want you to go back. Once you find Revelation 1, look up here at me, and I want to focus our thinking again. Remember where we started. 80% of people believe in heaven, and they all think they're going there, right? But they don't believe in hell. They don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in any of those things. And yet the book where we get the most information about heaven is the book of Revelation. When it was addressed before it was translated into English, it was called the Apocalypse because that's the the word revelation in Greek is apocalypse. Um, So what is an apocalypse? When you think of an apocalypse, how many of you think of something fun? No, it's horrible. And that's what Revelation is about. It's about the destruction of the earth. It's about the judgment of God on the world. And yet, that's where we get the most information about heaven. So you can't have the wonder of heaven without the wrath of God on earth. 
See, we're saved from something. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. All right. Now look at... um, Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice something. The first thing that John notices when he gets to heaven is the throne of God. And so... Any fanciful imagination of what heaven is without the focus on the throne of God is not true. All right? That throne of God and the, the one who sits on the throne is the focal point of heaven. The word throne is used 40 times in the book of Revelation. All right? Um, so, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. And he lists those churches. And look at what it says, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, And girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were like unto fine brass, just like Daniel saw. And if they burned, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I jumped up and down and ran to him and said, let's go play. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. You see, every image, every time a person is brought into the presence of God, he falls on his face and he recognizes that he is unworthy. You see, we have two views of heaven now. We have a fanciful view where all of our material pleasures, all of our material and physical wants are satisfied. And that makes the focus of heaven completely on us. And that is the complete opposite of the image of heaven that we have from Scripture. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is being in the presence of God. I want you to go through the Gospels and look at how Jesus Christ describes heaven. He says, My Father, which is in heaven. My Father, which is in heaven. God, which is in heaven. The Son of Man, which is in heaven. What is heaven about? Heaven is about God. The purpose of heaven is to be with Him. And it is beautiful. We can't even comprehend the beauty of it. 
When I go to the Alps and I see the amazing beauty that God created, you stand there and it just awestruck. You can't imagine how it, it is unimaginably beautiful. And the Bible says that I hath not seen nor ear heard nor hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared to them that love him. See, we live in the time of movies and we have special effects. And we think that if Spielberg can't present it, then it can't be real. I'm just telling you, Spielberg can't even come close to the glory and the majesty that we are going to experience in heaven. Every vision of heaven recorded in Scripture highlights that same sense of breathtaking majesty and daunting radiance. The glory of heaven is infinitely more intricate Transcendent, beautiful, awe-inspiring, full of wonder and delight. If you could observe it for all eternity, you would never grow weary of it. If you're a believer, that is precisely what is in store for you. Look at 1 Timothy Look at verse uh, 13, 1 Timothy 6, 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. So if someone else is called a potentate, he's a liar. The, is that what it says? Only potentate? Is that what it says? Does it say only potentate? Does it say only? Is that what it says? Which in his time shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. So the way that we our body has changed from mortal to immortal, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, is because he has it to give us who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, now look at this, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So any of the visions of Christ in His pre-incarnate glory, any of the pictures, any of the images, the visions of Christ that are given are shielded because those people would have died. Now look, I want you to see something. This, of course, is the single most powerful attraction and the highest reward of heaven. God's glory is permanently on display there in all its full resplendence. We'll be able to see it without being destroyed by it. Now, I want to read something to you. In Exodus... Um, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And remember what he did? He hid him in the cleft of a rock and he put his hand over him and he passed by him. And what did he do? He just spoke his name. And that would have killed him. And so Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon, A View of God's Glory. And the verse is Exodus thirty-three eighteen, And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Listen to what Spurgeon said. That was a large request to make. He could not have asked for more. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Why, it is the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. It seems to me the greatest stretch of faith that I have ever heard or read of. It was great faith which made Abraham go into the plain to offer up intercession for a guilty city like Sodom. It was vast faith which enabled Jacob to grasp the angel. It was mighty faith which enabled Elijah to rend the heavens and fetch down rain from the skies which had been like brass before. But it appears to me that this prayer contains a greater amount of faith than all the others put together. It is the greatest request that man could make to God. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Had he requested a fiery chariot to whirl him up to heaven? Had he asked to cleave the water floods and drown the chivalry of a nation? Had he prayed the Almighty to send fire from heaven to consume whole armies? I could, not, I could have found a parallel to his prayer. But when he offers this petition, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. 
He stands alone. A giant among giants, a colossus, even in those days of mighty men. His request surpasses that of any other man. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Among the lofty peaks and summits of man's prayers that rise like mountains to the skies, this is the culminating point. This is the highest elevation of faith ever gained. It is the loftiest place to which the great ambition of faith could climb. It is the topmost pillar of all the towering structures that confidence ever piled. I am astonished that Moses himself could have been bold enough to supplicate so wondrous a favor. Surely, after he had uttered the desire, his bones must have trembled. His blood curdled in his veins and his hair must have stood on end. Did he not wonder at himself? Did he not tremble at his own hardihood? We believe that such would have been the case had not the faith, the faith which prompted the prayer sustained him in the review of it. God, show me your glory. Do you know what heaven is going to be? Heaven is going to be the presence of God's glory while being in a glorified body so that you can enjoy it and study it and bask in it and learn of it and worship it for all eternity without being destroyed. What is heaven? Heaven's where God is. You know, the Bible says that in Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth descending from God out of heaven. New heavens and new earth descending from God out of heaven. The most important feature of God, or the most important feature of heaven, is that God is there. And you know, there's only one way to get there. It's through Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon also said this. Self-righteousness exclaims, I will not be saved in God's way. I will make a new road to heaven. I will not bow before God's grace. I will not accept the atonement which God has wrought out in the person of Jesus. I will be my own redeemer. I will enter heaven by my own strength and glorify my own merits. The Lord is very wroth against self-righteousness. I do not know of anything against which, which his fury burneth more than against this, because this touches him in a very tender point. It insults the glory and honor of his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to heaven. It's not through self-righteousness. You might not believe in heaven, but it's real. It exists. Jesus Christ said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what Jesus Christ said. He went to prepare a place. It's a very real place. I think the saddest thing is that heaven and hell are corresponding opposites. However great heaven is, that's how bad hell is. And the thing about every time we have a view of heaven, there's an understanding of God's righteous judgment. I hope that you're saved. I hope that if you died today that you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven. And I hope you know that God's going to change your vile body into a body like unto His glorious body. By the power wherewith he's able to subdue all things unto himself, as it says in Philippians chapter 3, so that we're able to have the, the, the pleasure of righteousness with him forever. That's what God gives us in eternal life. Spurgeon said this, Depend on it, my hearer. You, you never will go to heaven unless you are prayer, prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. Let me read that again. Depend on it, my hearer. You never will go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. The only way you can get to heaven, that if thou shalt call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. That's it. He's God. If you'll believe that and receive Him, He'll save you, and you'll have eternity in heaven with Him. Heaven's not a fanciful place. Heaven's a wonderful place. And it's, it's, it's beyond all of our descriptions. And the, the things that I've read, they're very difficult to understand because it's so different. We don't have any uh, point of reference for what heaven is like. It's not like this place. It's different. But the key feature 
is the presence of the glory of God. We can be with Him. How many of you want to go and see Jesus? Amen. Amen. The Bible says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, I was so, I was so oh, burdened this week. I, um, the Bible says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. I thought of those people that MacArthur preached to, who all they wanted to hear about was heaven because their life was so miserable. And God has blessed me with so much abundance that I don't even think about it. You know, we spend our days acquiring and wanting and doing. When the Bible says, set your affection on things above. The Bible says, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is not of God, but it's of the world. Isn't it interesting that among Christians, the world, the, the word worldliness seems old-fashioned because we become so worldly that the concept of being in heaven in a place of perfect righteousness apart from all of the mundanity that is here that seems boring to us uh, I want to go to heaven but there's stuff that I want to do first like someone said uh, I want to go to heaven but I haven't been to Hawaii yet As if that's better. What I want to do today is just two things. I, I, want to, I, I want to disabuse people of false ideas about what heaven is. And number two, I, I want us to lift our thinking. You know that we, we order our lives in such a way that we don't have time to worship. Right? We order our lives in such a way that, that taking the time to even come to church is a drudgery. We order our lives in such a way that finding time to pray and to contemplate things of the Lord, it's so hard. The, the world intrudes on us constantly. But you know what that means? We have to set our affection on things above as an act of the will where we say, Lord Jesus, you're better than my job. You're better than my house. You're better than my hobby. You're better than my entertainment. You're better than all of those. And then, do you know what God did? He gave us all those other things richly to enjoy. But not to the exclusion of Him. I want to ask you something. When's the last time you thought about heaven? The Bible says that's where our conversation is. That's where we're supposed to live. We're supposed to be so heavenly minded that we impact this world for God. Not so worldly minded that we have no effect at all for the Lord or for eternity. I was very convicted this week that I don't think enough about eternity. I don't think enough about heaven. I think too much about what's going on right now because God has been so good to us. Has God been good to you? Let's lift our eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word.